Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. It's been just like old times this weekend, hasn't it? Irrelevant ex-Prime Ministers like David Cameron... Tony Blair and John Major have all been warning about the dereliction of duty, the collapse of trust and the outright danger of supporting Boris Johnson's internal market bill against the European Union. As if we had forgotten how despicable and traitorous these people were in the past, here they are again to remind us of just how ghastly and un-British they actually are. This morning, the still Ramona-dominated media are collectively wetting themselves over Geoffrey Cox, the booming voice former Attorney General, who says he can't support the, in his words, unconscionable plot. Uh, I'll let you into a little secret. If Lewis Goodall and Sky News think yesterday's man Cox has anything to offer and is devastating Boris Johnson with his well-thought-out opinions, it's probably, actually, a rather good thing. Here's my message to the Prime Minister. Sack every single Tory MP that refuses to support the Northern Ireland plan. And I mean sack them all together. And I don't mean just ask them to uh, become independent MPs. I mean, ask them to have an actual vote. Ask them to go back to the populace, ask them to go back to the electorate, ask them to have by-elections and see whether, as independents, they can actually win their seats. Because guess what happened last time uh, they all did this? They ended up being out of a job. We'll be testing the waters this morning with newly created peer and former Labour Brexiteer Kate Hoey. 0344-499-1000. Coming up later on, we'll be discussing the rule of six with Mail on Sunday columnist Peter Hitchens because today is the day that policing minister Kit Malthouse actually suggested that people should grass up their neighbours for having more than six people in their home at any one time. What on earth are they trying to do to this country? And when will they realise that it's not working, it is never going to work, and there is no point in trying to make it work? Plus, we'll be revealing just how much money the union barons are coining in for their selfless service to the ahem, uh, workers of this country. And I'll be asking why on earth the BBC has got it wrong yet again by firing TV sports icon Sue Barker just because they think she's too old. That's right, if you're white and you're middle-aged, you're out as far as the BBC is concerned. 0344-499-1000. And of course, we want to hear from you. What did you get up to at the weekend? Have you spotted any COVID marshals? Have you had any interactions with them? And what on earth are you seeing and hearing out there? We need your voices because you are the voices of common sense. And also, we are the only radio station that cares what you think. 
We actually want to hear from you, uh, not to humiliate you, not to make you out to be ignorant, not to pretend that you don't know anything about the laws of this land. No, because we actually want to know what the pulse of the nation is thinking. We're pretty good at uh, knowing what that is anyway, uh, but we need your voices. 03444991000. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. Is it any wonder we are Talk Radio? Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, this morning you will have seen all sorts of devastating stories about Geoffrey Cox, the Attorney General, with his booming voice, I cannot in all good conscience support Boris Johnson in this law-breaking endeavour. Yeah, well, thanks very much, Geoffrey. Uh, we've seen you. We've, we've, we've done the act. We've seen all that. Uh, now you can go away. You're irrelevant. Nobody, give, nobody give, gives a monkey's what you say. Nobody cares what you think. And quite frankly, uh, you might as well just go back to your uh, constituents uh, and uh, resign. Thank you very much indeed. You want to be a Tory? Support the Tory party. You want to be uh, on the government side? Support the government. Don't sit there as if you've got some unconscionable uh, reason to support the European Union over the government. Andrew Neil put out a very good tweet over the weekend in which he basically said anyone who is uh, critical of the government because they rather prefer the bullying nature of the European Union to the uh, supposedly steadfast nature of the British government has got a screw loose. Let's talk to Kate Hoey, uh, formerly, uh, of course, a Labour MP, now a peer in the House of Lords, also uh, a woman who knows an awful lot more about Northern Ireland Uh, than you can shake a stick at. Kate, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. I'm sick to death of these rebel Tories. What's wrong with them? Well, I think we're seeing the last gasp of um, people who have never wanted us to leave the European Union and then a few people who feel that they have to sort of stick to this kind of I think, quite ridiculous, um, extreme view of the rule of law mm. uh, in terms of the international treaty. But I, I'm, I'm sorry I'm not there to vote, you know, tonight. Uh, I hope I'll be actually have taken my seat in the Lords to vote when it gets to the Lords, because I'm sure it will go through tonight. I'm sure the, the vote will go through. And to, I think that the bill is a very proportional, proportionate view of looking at how the European Union has reacted and actually um, behaved since the uh, since the treaty was signed because right. they have just not acted in good faith and it's very clear that the little committee that was set up that Michael Gove is on to work to look at the protocol um, has not been working properly and uh, that Michael Gove and if Michael Gove feels that they really have been acting in uh, without any good faith, then, you know, I'm going to believe the British government rather than the European Union mandarins, I'm afraid. Well, exactly. I mean, isn't it extraordinary that there are still those out there who would rather side with the European Union against the British government, which was elected in a massive uh, majority to, to, to get Brexit done, to leave the EU? I mean, Dominic Grieve has never been busier, you know, this weekend, where he was interviewed by all sorts of idiots who thought uh, that basically he has something to offer. He doesn't have yes, anything to I- offer. And I, I think it is. It's the same old people coming out with the same old, uh, you know, uh, views on this. Just doing anything to actually criticise the government on this issue. You know, it, it all comes down to the whole question of 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 uh, Northern Ireland and and the peace process right. and the border. And it just seemed to me that you know, if if we're going to be, I, I don't accept anything to do with the Good Friday Agreement has anything to do with this mm. actually. But if you do accept that somehow it's going to threaten the peace process by having not having uh, by having a border down um, between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland then uh, that's breaking the Good Friday Agreement 
why is it not then breaking the Good Friday Agreement to have a border down the Irish Sea, which is, is something which is an anathema to people who want to stay part of the United Kingdom? Right. And it, it, it just seems to me that any MP tonight who actually votes against this bill is really saying quite straightforwardly that they do not want Northern Ireland, that they do not care about Northern Ireland being in the Union, and that they would prefer to put their faith in uh, the European Union uh, and all the kinds of maverick people that are in there and the way they have behaved. I just, I don't think it's quite shocking. And tonight will really test, I think, MPs as to whether they are genuinely, genuinely, um, you know, pro the United Kingdom or whether they are simply uh, wanting to be part of some kind of unelected federal kind of state of the European Union, because that's that's what they're really saying tonight if they vote against this bill. Yes. And I mean, people have been agitating all weekend, and I include in that the, the foreign minister of the Irish government, uh, who have always been very pro-European in this whole kind of conversation. They've never really sided with the UK, but they've been proved wrong time and time again. But even as I was listening to an interview with the foreign minister, um, somebody said, oh, will this bring the, uh, you know, the United Ireland poll any closer? And even he admitted, actually, no, it won't. Because in the end, um, you know, there is there is only going to be I found this quite interesting in terms of democracy. There's only going to be a poll uh, if there is a majority belief that there are people in the north who want to have a united Ireland, which at the moment isn't the case. Yes, it has to be pretty. There can't be a referendum until it's really very, very clear that there is a majority wanting to leave the United Kingdom. And I do not think that is going to happen in my lifetime mm. and, and probably for a very long time. But, you know, it, it is important to remember what the EU has done. The, the threat, the actual threat that they made, that if they didn't get what they wanted, they would stop, literally stop um, uh, produce going from Great Britain to Northern Ireland. You know, they'll have a, almost a kind of food embargo. Yes. Now, if, that's, if anything's going to, uh, uh, you know, threaten the peace process, I would have thought that would be something that would be pretty high up there. And I, I just, I, I find it unimaginable that everyone who's been, you know, particularly from the Republic of Ireland, because their trade is actually cr incredibly important with Great Britain. And you would think by now that their government would be recognising that when it suits the European Union, they will turn on the Republic of Ireland too. You know, the idea that somehow the Republic of Ireland is being so supportive of the EU because it's going to help them in the future already. They've been given a huge bill for all the uh, um, latest um, COVID preparations, you know, right. extra money. So I, I think this is going to be, it's very short-sighted of the Irish government. And I think there'll be a lot of Irish people more and more questioning um, why they are taking this ridiculous role of pretending that they're interested in the uh, United Kingdom. You know, the idea that Coveney was saying, and it's so sad that, you know, the United Kingdom is going to lose faith in the in the, uh, in, in the world uh, in terms of what they're doing with this bill. You know, I really don't think that Coveney is particularly interested in um, how well the United Kingdom is thought of in the no. rest of the world. No, and also it's a rather ludicrous idea, isn't it, that, you know, somehow we are ruining our reputation. You know, quite frankly, the government was always, I mean, I said this last year, the government is doing the best it can to negotiate in the best way that it can uh, with the best will in the world. The trouble is you're dealing with a bunch of snakes in the European Union uh, who are no more loyal to us than they would be to anybody else that they see as traitorous to the cause. And they no. will do everything they can to stitch us up. And they're being backed up, I'm afraid, by by uh, and helped by um, British um, 
MPs. And of course, this is what happened during the original negotiation. They knew that every time there was a, a problem, they were going to get support. The European Union would be getting support from people within our British Parliament. Mm. And, and and it is it is it is quite uh, shocking that that has been that is now continuing. But I was quite you know when I saw the John Major Tony Blair uh, letter, I felt um, I felt quite. Um, sure that the vote would actually be bigger tonight uh, <laughs> for the bill because I remember when they visited Northern Ireland and crossed the bridge in uh, Londonderry stroke Derry they um, uh, that and calling on people to vote uh, to remain actually the, the polls showed later that actually more people had decided because Tony Blair and uh, John Major was saying it that they would be voting to leave so I I am um, I wasn't too upset about that, but it is interesting to see all the ex-prime ministers. I was disappointed in David Cameron coming out because he'd kept very quiet. Up yeah. now. Um, but, you know, again, it's 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 not it's it's there is something in the, the withdrawal agreement, Article 38, that actually gives Parliament sovereignty. Mm. So we Parliament has the right to change slightly um, things that have been agreed if it's not in the interest of our country and it's certainly not in the interest of our country and of course in my view if we end up with with um, uh, no agreement no trade agreement then I don't see that the withdrawal agreement should stand and therefore we no. shouldn't be giving the 39 billion pounds and all the extra things that the European Union want. But isn't it extraordinary that the, the media is still playing the oh. same old game right when we did that deal on Friday with Japan all the reports that I saw, and I include our own news team here at Talk Radio, are saying things like, oh, but, you know, it doesn't really make much difference to the trade um, uh, overall because it could be that we'd lose a lot more trade by not having any deal with the European Union. And you go, well, that's not news. The news is we've got a trade deal with Japan. The news yeah. is not uh, that we might lose more money by not getting a trade deal with the EU. Mm. Well, I can forgive some of the media who are not being paid by my 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 license fee, but what I can't forgive is the BBC attitude to all of this, and that's why you know the whole campaign to look at the license fee to stop making it a mm. criminal offence to pay it, and indeed to actually you know to use that sort of temp, um, modern phrase defund the BBC is actually very very important now because the BBC is not acting. Uh, as it should do. Uh, first of all, obviously, we want to we want it to be impartial, but we hope that it is actually there as a British broadcasting corporation, not a European Union broadcasting corporation. And that's the way some of the um, reporting has come across. Yes, exactly right. And what's the feeling in Northern Ireland, Kate? Because, of course, the problem for us uh, sitting here in the capital is that we get told things by the media about what Northern Ireland believes about this deal. But actually, the, the ordinary people in Northern Ireland, we very rarely hear from. So what's the what's the feeling on the street as far as this whole deal is well, concerned? Well, I think... I think the, the small business, you know, the, the, there was no doubt about it. Northern Ireland voted, not by a huge majority, but voted to remain. But of course, as part of the United Kingdom, uh, voted to leave. And, and most people have accepted that. The small, the business community just want, as they've always wanted, certainty. And I, they, what they don't want is to have to have any kind of uh, paperwork, extra administration costs in, in actually moving their goods to their main market, which is Great Britain. Right. And similarly, Great Britain people, you know, people who are trying to bring in something from Great Britain don't want to find that they're, they're going to have to pay extra just because the European Union has decided that that 
particular good might go on down across the border and into what they call their single market. Yeah. So it's it, it really it really does amaze me that anyone anyone who cares about our country and cares about the union could possibly possibly think of voting against this very sensible bill that's coming through tonight which will actually mean that if the european union do as it looks like they might do completely try to not um uh, try to behave in a way that is just not acceptable internationally never international treaties um then we have a way out of that and that's why uh, boris johnson has brought that bill forward and i think most people in northern ireland when it comes to the bit would would accept even if they're nationalists that most of the trade goes to Great Britain and that's what's important. Right. And do you think this is the first of many sort of skirmishes, if you like? Is it being played up too much as a big battle between uh, UK sovereignty and the European Union, who don't seem to want to want, allow Britain to have uh, sovereignty over its own country? Well, I don't think the European Union has actually really learnt or recognised yet that we are we have left. And that therefore, the reason, one of the reasons we wanted to leave, the main reason is that we wanted to make our own laws and our rules and get our fishing back and all of those things that went on during the referendum. I don't think they've quite accepted that. And, and they are terrified, absolutely terrified, especially what's happening with um, all the other issues within the mm. European Union, that if we are successful, as we will be when we finally get out and get our complete independence, then other countries will want to follow. And that is what this is all about. They want to, They want to show that... You will be punished if you leave the European Union. You'll be punished if you break away from this little clique. And uh, the, the part of this is um, part of this whole uh, discussion at the moment is because of that. And it's just very disappointing that so many of our own British MPs feel to be and seem to be um, have been taken in by the European mm. Union. Yeah, well, I, as I said at the start of the show, I would get rid of them all, ditch them all, uh, make them all standing <laughs> by elections and see how they like uh, that uh, for the for the onions, because I think they might get a bit of a shock from the electorate. Well, I think I think the electorate showed at the last general election that they they wanted Brexit done. Of course, we've got out now, but the trade agreements, the trade arrangements were always going to be tricky. But they didn't need to be tricky if the European Union had showed good faith, and the European Union has not showed good faith. It really hasn't. And just on a, on a on a sort of a general matter, Kate, how's the COVID scenario over there? How's the uh, uh, the, the the local administration, yeah. as I like to call it, <laughs> dealing with it? I mean, I'm not sure that this law of six is going to work particularly well. I'm not sure well, that the government like like all governments at the moment in the world uh, is taking the right tack here well um, we have a law of six but inside only that was brought in last week because the numbers of of of, of uh, people testing had gone up but of course like throughout the rest of the united kingdom most of the people who are testing now are, are of a younger age mm. some people are testing and have absolutely no symptoms whatsoever so it is a complicated issue and I, my my instinct as always on these things is people most people you know whatever the whatever is said there's always going to be people who would break whatever it is so why punish the good people yeah. and therefore you know i do think it more and more it should be left to the common sense of people obviously certain things should not be allowed like very very much like mass mass gatherings of people um but then that only seems to happen if you're going on an extinction rebellion there and that's March. okay because they've given them an exemption i mean it's beggar's <laughs> belief isn't it but northern Ireland has done very well really and, and it's not surprising because we are you know it's, it's it's quite quite a lot of open space and people have been i think people on the whole have have followed uh, the rules a lot yeah. of people were wearing masks for example in before they had to and they only have to in shops now and uh, I, again common sense should prevail we can't we can't 
go on like this because we've got to start getting back to some kind of normality. Mm. Yeah. No, um, I couldn't agree more. Kate, thanks very much indeed. Hopefully we'll see you in London soon. Uh, Kate Hurry, Labour peer, reporting into us from Northern Ireland, where, of course, uh, the European Union is saying, oh, well, we can't let them do that. We'll have to stop them doing that because we are still in charge uh, of the other part of Ireland and we will make sure that Northern Ireland isn't able to do the things that the British government, which actually is the administrator of Northern Ireland, wants to do. It's an absolute nonsense. I'm absolutely all for um, letting the European Union know that we will not take any prisoners. We are not interested in what they think they want us to do. Uh, We are not interested in them dictating policy to us. All we are interested in uh, is making sure that the European Union gets their noses firmly out of the trough of the UK. We stop giving them money. We stop giving them access. And we tell them quite firmly, this is what we're doing. And whether you like it or not, it's going to happen. So get stuffed. And for all you Tories out there who think that you know better than the electorate who voted to get Brexit done, then stand on your morals. Take yourselves out of the Conservative Party, resign from it today, stand for election in a by-election and see how you get on. That's my challenge to you all. And not one of you will do it because you know why? You're all mealy-mouthed. You're all useless. Jeffrey Cox included. Jeffrey Cox, I'm the most important man in my world. Well, no, you're not. You're a plank. This is Talk Radio. Talk Radio. We often hear from the old lefty union leaders, particularly lately uh, the teaching unions, the civil service unions, the people who don't really want to go back to work, who are quite happy working from home, who are quite happy doing very little work indeed on the grounds that we're all a bit frightened of COVID, right? Guess what? The Taxpayers Alliance has done on the uh, day that the TUC meets, the TUC Congress begins today, right? Because it is technically uh, sort of, you know, conference season, even though nobody can really do it properly. It turns out that education union bosses have topped this year's annual public sector trade union rich list with six senior staff sharing, get this, £1,296,869 between them. The average wage for a public sector union boss is 153935 quid. So, These champagne socialists, as I like to call them, are truly that, champagne socialists. You can buy an awful lot of Bollinger if you're making £154,000 a year. Let's talk now uh, to Duncan Simpson, Research Director at the Taxpayers Alliance. Duncan, this is quite breathtaking, I have to say. Great work. Thanks a lot. Um, It is indeed. I mean, we've done this for a couple of years now, and year after year, we've seen these kind of figures. And, you know, one would think it's not sort of an immediate taxpayer issue, but ultimately... You know, they get vast sums of money. So there's, there's a couple of particular examples, one of which is trade union facility time. And that's basically paid time off for union reps within public sector organisations to uh, look after you know, union duties, so mediation and, and so forth. Mm. Um, and that came to over £81 million pounds, uh, the year before last. Let's not forget that quite a few of these unions who are the most uh, aggressive, particularly the rail unions, are getting vast sums of cash now through not least HS2. I think the total taxpayer support, uh, again, last year was over £7 billion. Pounds. That would wow. be you know, rising year after year with uh, the construction of HS2 if the, if the government really is insistent on going going to do that. No. Obviously, people choose to join a union. That's their, that's absolutely their prerogative. We're not going to you know tell people not to go and join a union. But ultimately, it's a very hard circle to square. When on the one hand, the unions are saying we're speaking to public sector workers, but on the other, we're demonstrably not <laughs> helping the public at a particularly difficult time. Time, not least uh, reopening the schools. No, exactly right. And I'm looking at an incredible figure here, and I take the view that uh, that this is way over and above what she should have ever been given. But Sally Hunt, 
formerly the General Secretary of the University and College Union. She stood down, apparently, um, in uh, March 2019. But her total remuneration, £534,805. I mean, half a million quid a year to run a union. Mm. It's extraordinary. It's, it's, it's remarkable. I think she had a pretty, pretty hefty salary. I think she had a car allowance of something like £4,300. So, um, you know, I'm sure you can get a really nice Mercedes E-Class, uh, you know, lease that for a, lease that for a year for, for far less than that, I'm sure. Though I don't know exactly what it is, but it's, it's remarkable. And, you know, bear in mind that Sally Hunt was the union leader who time after time, month after month, was bemoaning the government during the, during the uh, uh, lecturer's strike of their pensions. And not least was, was personally going after quite a few senior academics mm. who, of course, earned too much. I think that the principle of Edinburgh University got a total uh, pay, uh, pay packet, so you know, salary and pension and so forth, in excess of £400,000, the very same figure which she received as post-employment payments, whatever that means. Right. Um, so it's, 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 it's breathtaking. On the one hand, you know, holding the position of I'm standing up for, allegedly standing up for my lecturers, but on the other hand, quite happy to take my union members' cash to do you know, something in retirement. Well, you might say the same about Dave Prentice, who's been in the news quite recently. The public service union, Unison, of course, uh, is, with, is, is his uh, particular area of expertise. 138,531 quid. Extraordinary stuff. And if you look at some of the civil service unions as well, um, you know, they are all the people who are saying it's not safe to return to work. They're the ones who are saying, you know, our, our members are at risk. And yet they are literally living high on the hog uh, with money which is coming to them by those very um, those very members. Mm. Yeah, yeah, indeed. There's, there's going to be a really interesting point in a couple of years' time where you'll have very likely have a majority of people who work in the public sector are no longer a member of a trade union. So mm. we're just above that threshold at the moment. It's about 51%, 52%. So in a few years' time, when you know Frances or Grady, or Grady rather, and her successor get up and say, we are speaking on behalf of the public sector, we'll be able to turn around and say, no, actually, a majority of the people within these public sector organisations don't choose to unionise. And so therefore, for you to have the, you know, the cheek to put forward this position, which may ultimately close down uh, sections of the country, it's even more galling than it was than it was previously. So yeah. that'd, be, that'd be an interesting point, how the TUC and other uh, trade unions, especially in the public sector, actually deal with that. Absolutely right. And here's a good one as well. One of my favourites, the British Medical Association, which people, because of the name, are under the impression is not actually a trade union, but it very clearly is a trade union. And they were very vocal during the whole COVID uh, sort of early days, weren't they, during the uh, the pandemic as people were uh, supposedly not getting enough PPE, literally telling lies about what PPE was not being supplied when it turned out that it was being supplied to COVID wards. They were making out that it wasn't. And in fact, the people who were actually in the COVID wards were saying, no, there's no problem at all. But the head of the BMA, a guy called Dr. Chan Nagpal, 193,414 quid. Yeah, it's huge. And I, th- I think I think his salary alone, which was one hundred and seventy-one thousand, uh, that's something like six times the multiple of a junior doctor. So, right. so for well, how many nurses doctor, would you get for that? Uh, probably a similar number, about half a dozen, maybe slightly more than that. Yeah. So it's it's again, it's pretty galling. And bear in mind that you know the BMA, in particular, in recent years, has effectively become a campaigning organisation. So rather than saying, well, actually, it's you know we're having some difficulty with this particular trust by introducing some new staff, uh, they're just very very proactively using their using their members' cash to go and campaign on increasingly inane topics which don't have any relevance to uh, to doctors or indeed the, the people that they, that they seek to serve in the NHS. Right. And I mean, do you think that people who pay into the union would be surprised at these figures. I think they would because, you know, they're probably even even the most staunch union uh, members must believe that, uh, you know, the leaders of their of their unions are doing the best work they can for for the for the benefit of the members. However, I think they would balk at the number, the eye watering six figure salaries that these guys are doing. 
Yeah, it's, it's pretty fast. So I would say partially in some of the unions, the fence, I mean, we obviously we go through uh, loads of unions returns, effectively their annual reports. And there are quite a few who, who won't, who don't sort of hit the, hit the number that we look for, which is a hundred thousand pounds total remuneration. There are many who, you know, much smaller sort of regional unions who just won't have, won't have that kind of outlay for that. But you know, a lot of, a lot of the largest unions, which are based in you know, the West End or other, other parts of central London um, have, have seen these, you know, huge and creeping salaries over the years. And as I say, when the number of people who are actually members of trade unions, both in the private and the public sector, has been declining for, you know, 40 years, um, it does beg the question, what exactly are you paying for with your union dues? Yeah, absolutely right. Duncan, well, listen, it's great work. Um, if you've got a link to put us uh, put out there for us, do tweet it out and we'll, uh, we'll retweet it for you. Duncan Simpson, there, uh, Research Director at Taxpayers Alliance. Fantastic research here uh, in which it, it says the average remuneration of 29 union bosses uh, on more than 100,000 was 153,935. The highest paid public sector trade union boss, Sally Hunt, former General Secretary of the University and College Union, 534,805 quid. These are the people who are telling the teachers not to go back to work. Is it any wonder that the schools are in a terrible, terrible mess? I'd like to hear from you, by the way, if you're a parent, because my my kids went back to school last week uh, and already uh, they're being told, oh, uh, you know, things are not looking good. Uh, we'll probably have to shut the school again soon. Imagine telling that to 13, 14, 15 year old kids. What an absolute disgrace. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk radio. Now, it will not surprise you to know that we have reached what I would regard as kind of peak plankdom. Uh, we're now going to speak to Peter Hitchens from the Mail on Sunday, uh, who must be beside himself uh, with what I can only describe as frustration uh, and anger that uh, everything, everything that he's ever said has turned out to be correct. Peter, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Good morning to you, too. So, um, I, I don't know how much more ridiculous this can get, um, but it got a bit more ridiculous, I think, with his rule of six, didn't it? 
Well, I think it has because what the rule of six does, um, and as Professor Carl Hennigan of Oxford University's Centre for Evidence-Based Medicine points out, there is no basis on which the figure six uh, can actually be justified. Mm. There's no scientific reason for it, uh, no purpose for it, no reason why it shouldn't be seven or five or 19. They've just conjured it out of thin air. Right. Uh, but what it does... Is it is it uh, is it actually makes um, the the conduct of normal life a, a, a criminal offence? Mm. It makes normal life illegal. Yeah. And here is the problem which you have with it. It's uh, it, it extends even further into what people would previously have thought were areas where the state had no business at all of any kind. Yes. And this is the road to ultimately its tyranny. You see the extreme version of it going on now in Victoria and Australia, uh, where people are confined to their homes for about 23 hours a day, only allowed to go within three miles of their homes, where demonstrators are treated as if they were in Belarus. I think uh, Melbourne is shortly going to be twinned with Minsk. Yeah. Um, the, the, whole, the whole place has become a, a, a miniature tyranny uh, for no good purpose. And this is the other thing. None of this does any good. Well, it so we, have, we have reached a, a point, and, and you, as you pointed out rightly, Kitten Malthouse, uh, one of these supposed libertarians uh, who's been attached to uh, Mr. Johnson since he was mayor of London uh, is actually now saying people should grass on their yeah. neighbours. They catch them having more people around than allowed by the law. Imagine that. It's extraordinary, isn't it? And I mean, interestingly enough, I mean, you would have, I'm sure, read Lord Sumption's column in the Sunday Times this weekend, at which yeah. he pointed out several things. One, that there isn't really any point in, in making people stay home. But the only way that you can actually stop the disease from spreading, literally, is to put people into kind of individual, um, you know, hazmat suits, feed them through a tube and have them never meet anybody ever again. And that's the only possible way to stop it from spreading. Given that that's impossible to do, surely the government now needs to look at different ways of managing it. Well, it has been fatuous from the first to believe that state action could combat the spread of a virus. Mm. Uh, this is the old Canute problem. The governments simply don't have that much power. Uh, all we could do was alleviate it in intelligent ways. And the, the, the greatest failure in this was always to protect people in care homes who were specifically vulnerable, who could have been, could have been safeguarded by, by government action. It's always been uh, a, a, a vain and overbearing uh, view of government that somehow or other they can prevent the spread of the virus. And now they've become so obsessed with this that they're, they're like a, a man peering at the world through a microscope. Uh, they keep on coming out with these figures about uh, infections and cases, which mean nothing in real life. These are not people who are ill. Uh, they're, they're infecting other people who don't become ill. Mm. So what is the reason in that case? for inventing this rule that, we, that has effectively made Christmas an arrestable offence. Yeah. There is no reason for it. But they can't actually unglue themselves from their microscopic obsession because they can't understand or admit that they've made a grotesque mistake. Mm. Well, I did a little bit of research over the weekend in, into a bunch of things, including this business of the R rate, because I started to hear the R rate being no, mentioned R again, right? Now, the R rate, as you probably know, is an entire invention by a modelling uh, scenario through Imperial College. And what it does is it continues to collect data on various things and then estimate what they think the R rate is, which is the infection rate from one person to another, right? Now, one of the aspects of it is what's going on in the general public. So, for example, by opening the schools, the R rate goes up. By allowing people to go back into the pubs, the R rate goes up. It doesn't actually mean that it's going up at all. It's just that the model recognises that there are more people out and about. Therefore, it goes up. I mean, it's, it's about as unscientific as you can get. 
Well, it's scientific in that sort of finicky way of someone's gathering figures and making calculations on the basis of it. It's unscientific in that it doesn't actually seem to be seeking the truth right. uh, or experimental facts for any practical purpose. Now, if you wanted to engage science in this, and I very much do, I'm a, a huge uh, respecter of the scientific method and of serious research, because how else do we find out for certain what's going on? Then you do it practically. You say, how is it that, that, that we actually deal with this? Mm. You say, there are many, many people who are not actually suffering from this. Uh, but on the other hand, they are, they're spreading it. So what would be the logical response to that? Well, perhaps it would be to take the Swedish view, which is not deliberately to, to create herd immunity, but to do things which don't prevent that from happening. And Anders Tegnell, the man in charge of the Swedish uh, the Swedish COVID operation, now says that it seems fairly likely that Sweden will go through the coming months with probably less in the way of infection among the vulnerable than other countries because so many people have had it and have developed an immunity to it. That's practical science, uh, cool-headed, unpolitical, just straightforwardly saying this is what we can do, this is what we have mm. done, this is what's likely to happen. The countries which have been most stringent, which have locked people in boxes with feeding tubes to all intents and purposes, are now the ones which seem to be facing rises in infections. If that, if that's your, if that's your obsession, right. uh, then if, if if you are so worried about rises in infections, then why did you follow policies which were quite likely to lead to this when the cooler weather began to arrive? Right. Because it will. It's it's again, again as Professor Hennigan points out, at this time of year, as more people come back from the holidays to work. Uh, then respiratory infections do spread. It's a normal feature of life. Right. And I mean, I'm like, uh, like most people, I think, in this country, you know, I took, I decided to go back to public transport this morning. I got on a bus. I had to wear a mask. I wore a mask. I didn't object to it. I didn't like it. But, you know, that's what they're asking me to do. I'll do it. I won't wear one walking down the street. I also have to wear one to walk into this building. I also have to wear one in the lift when I'm in this building. Other than that, that's the only time I wear them. But it would seem to me that it's a bit odd, is it not, that all of the countries where mask wearing has become compulsory are the places where the risk and the uh, and the exposure to the disease is going up. Well, it does seem to be so. In Spain, it's most notable. I think people are actually pulled in by the police for driving their cars on their own in Spain with the windows open, not wearing a muzzle. Hmm. Uh, this is the extent of the absurdity. And and, and yes, indeed, the, the, the infections are rising in Spain. But this is no surprise to anybody who's looked into the, the experimental basis of masks. If you wear a, a tight-fitting surgical-type mask, uh, which you never touch and which you throw away when you finish with it and don't reuse, then in a hospital setting with all kinds of other precautions, you will reduce the spread of, of infection. That's what they use for yeah. in hospitals. If you wear a rectangle of cloth, uh, which you constantly touch, which you take off and put on again, uh, which is loose at the edges and not fitted, uh, then nothing of the kind will happen. And this is perfectly obvious to anybody who thinks about it. The, and also, if you look at the graphs of the level of deaths and hospitalizations from COVID, you'll see that mask wearing was introduced pretty much when they'd reached rock bottom. Mm. So it isn't, it, it, everybody who knows anything about it and who understands the issue knows that they weren't introduced for medical reasons. The, the reason that they were introduced is, is yet more of this attempt to spread alarm and fear and, and keep people worrying about this threat and that therefore make them uh, obedient to government diktat. The, the mask is a badge of obedience and assent to a daft government policy. It's mm. one of the main reasons why people like me won't have anything to do with it and oppose it because it, it's not a medical thing. It's, it's like being forced to wear, if you were a liberal, 
uh, or indeed me, I don't like President Trump either. It's like being forced to wear one of those red Make America Great Again baseball caps. Right. It's a declaration of support for a policy, and indeed, in, in the case of Mr. Johnson, a person of whom I deeply disapprove. Yeah. It's like the days when people in, in totalitarian countries had to wear the party badge, had to wear the party armband, had to fly the party flag on their on their balconies during, during party feast days. Forced to assent uh, to a policy you don't agree with. It's, it's compelled speech. It's an assault on liberty. That's the reason for being against it. I mean, there are plenty of other reasons for not doing it. It's a repellent thing to have to do. And mm. just looking at the, the poor, surrendered, submissive look of, of people scurrying around with their eyes, peering over the top of them. It, it's, it's pathetic to see grown men and women acting in this way but, uh, and, and, and embarrassing in some ways. But I, I try to be uh, pleasant and tolerant because, it's as I say, from the start, I treated believers in this scare story as uh, as if they were adherents of, of another religion mm. to which one has to be polite yes no i think and i think that's the right thing to do because we are still despite everything a relatively civilized society and i think being uh, civilized uh, is is the best the best way to fight back against this kind of but, 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 tyranny honestly, that you describe interrupt there it, it, the is it civilized when you have the police minister actually calling on people uh, to inform on their neighbours? Well, no, that's it's not civilised. It's civilised when that's my, going my, on, but, or all no, we should be worrying about my, slipping into uncivilization. No, 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 listen, I take that point, and I, and I agree with you, but what I would say is, is that our best form of defence against this tyranny uh, is to be as civilised as possible. Um, I'm hoping it won't come to what some people fear that it will come to, which is kind of civil unrest, where people will eventually say one COVID marshal too many has come up to me and told me to do something. And I'm now going to punch him in the face. And obviously, well, I hope, you, you hope know, not. I, I hope I, not as well. So much argue against that kind of behavior. I think people should try to keep their tempers and, uh, and that works both ways. People shouldn't. I mean, it's unlikely that anyone's going to come up to me, a bearded fat bloke um, who's got reasonably broad shoulders and looks <laughs> like he could give you a hard time uh, in the street and tell me to wear a mask. Right. But one does hear of, of women uh, being seriously intimidated yeah. uh, on, on this. And people should lay off. They have no idea. And there are definitely, particularly women, uh, who have been raped, who have a horror of having anything placed across their mm. mouths. And that doesn't show. Uh, you wouldn't know, but right. people can might come up to such a person and and, and badger them to wear a, a, a mask, and it's quite unacceptable. Leave other people alone. Mm. Mind your own business. But the trouble is, that's fine. That's fine. The trouble is with the advent of these COVID. How about this? Right, somebody sent me this today. Birmingham City Council would no doubt tell you that they haven't got any money. They are cash-strapped. Uh, they can't afford to supply children with books. They can't afford to drive children to school on school buses because the kids have to pay for it themselves. They have got um, a recruitment drive on to find 60, count it, six, zero, 60 people to be COVID marshals. And here's the, uh, here's the perks of the job. Immediate start, up to three months long is the, is the duration. Uh, £10.42 per hour, including holiday pay. Uh, you get uh, flexible working patterns with shift work across seven days. Excellent opportunity to provide support back to your local community. Uh, and you will get free uh, transport to different localities. I mean, where are they getting the money from for a start? Well, they get it from, from Rishi Sunak's magic money forest, uh, where all the money in the country <laughs> the now comes forest. from. We're, we're a country in t- awash in funny money, yeah. which one week, one week is spent like Monopoly. On, one week is spent on telling us all to go out and eat ourselves silly and drink ourselves silly in restaurants at half price. The next week uh, is spent on telling us all to go home again and, and, and stop associating with each other. 
It really is quite extraordinary. And one, one, I mean, I was, the other thing that I was researching over the weekend was there was a, a story that I saw uh, in which it said that uh, there's now been an increase once again in care homes, right? Now, it turns out that the government pledged to test everybody who works in care homes once a week and to test everybody who is looked after in care homes once a month. Now, if, if, if you were an idiot, you, you would think that this, these two things are not related. But clearly, the number of infections and the number of cases uh, has gone up because they're testing everybody. Um, however, there is no suggestion that the testing is affecting anybody um, positively apart from people who actually work there, not the people who actually live there. No, it it does seem from what I've from what I've so far seen that the, the the main new incidence in this is as elsewhere in the country. It's it's in the people working in the care yeah. homes rather than the people living there, and in 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 younger people and people in their early middle age. Yes, I think that's true. And I mean, the trouble is that every time the government comes out, I was in, uh, out for dinner in Borough Market on Thursday night uh, in a very innovative sit- setting where the, the guy that runs one of the biggest fruit and vegetable stands there has in the evenings now turned it into a restaurant. And he was saying um, that because of this uh, rule of six, he's already had people texting him and emailing him saying, listen, we were really looking forward to coming out. But now that we've been told we can't mix in bigger groups than we thought, we're now worried again and we're not coming. Well, I know, and I also know people who've cancelled holidays. Yeah. So they were going with friends because the, the the group in this case was was seven, and they they just couldn't do it. Yes, but it's uh, not just that; it's the fact that every time. But it's the fact that every time the government puts out another kind of uh, cautionary tale, people get worried. They think there's a reason to be worried. Well, and then, of course, there is a reason to be worried because these things are sometimes uh, haphazardly and arbitrarily enforced, and for those people against whom they're enforced, it can be quite serious. People are, are, are reasonably worried, even if they don't think the thing is uh, is serious itself. But again, it's quite the case uh, that there are large numbers of people who take all this stuff seriously and who believe it. And uh, and as, as long as the government continues to insist that we are in the grip of a, of a plague similar to that in 1918, those people will act uh, as, as on instructions of this kind with in- incredibly damaging results for the economy and for civil society. Mm. It will happen. The government has this power. It's created it. It has only one way of dismantling it. It won't do that. Yeah. But how much further can we go with this, Peter? Because, you know, I'm, I'm not going to ask you the question again, because I always ask you the same question about why are they doing it? Why won't they just stop well, you know doing answer. it? And the answer, as you quite rightly say, is they don't want to admit making a mistake. But, you know, it's getting more serious than that. I read a piece in the New York Times the other day about uh, uh, Mayor de Blasio in New York, and apparently business leaders now are impeaching, sorry, imploring him um, to get everybody back into the to the city because New York City is actually in a worse state than London is in yeah. terms of lawlessness, in terms of homelessness, in terms of no tourism. Uh, you know, the, the, the whole city is, is about to fall into the sea, it would seem. And yet he is like a bit like Sadiq Khan. He doesn't think that there's a problem. He thinks actually the city can be changed. He thinks the city can do without rich people, that they can do without big companies. And I wonder whether this Tory government is so lost that it starts to think that way as well. Well, I think they do. I think people, an awful lot of people who, who previously had fairly limited political objectives have become, in a way, utopians. They think they're in a battle to the death with the virus. Mm. Uh, now, the problem with a virus is it's, it's like world communism or world terrorism. It's not exactly an easy thing to defeat. It's, it's intangible. Uh, you can't really do it. So you, you've got an unending license to impose restrictions on society 
for that purpose. And every time you're challenged, you can say, well, you, do you want to go around killing people? Do you want to kill your granny? Yeah. How can yeah. you be so irresponsible? And once that kind of idea has taken hold of people, there's almost nothing they won't do because they think they're doing good. Bill Blasio thinks he's doing good. Al Boris Johnson thinks he's doing good. They all think they're doing good. And and therefore, it sounds they they think any critic of what they do is wicked and irresponsible and, and, and wishes to see many deaths, which is, as you, of course, you know, re the reverse of the case. But yeah. in the tiny uh, zones which these people operate, with very small numbers of advisors, all with the same convictions, they never hear serious words of opposition. And they never, they never even consult the many scientists, for instance, who have doubts about what's going on. They're not, the, 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 the people who are actually given access to the government are, of course, as it was again during the Iraq war. Yeah. Anyone who knew anything about Iraq was immediately excluded from this group of advisors. Anyone who understands the, the dangers of this policy is immediately excluded uh, from the advisors of this government. Yeah. That's how government works. Well, I love the way that they put the spin out uh, towards the end of last week, that there was indeed some dissent inside the cabinet, uh, but the dissent only uh, managed to stretch to those who thought it should be eight rather than six. Yeah, I, I, mean, I mean, I'm not even buying that particular spin. But Peter, let's finish up with um, some interesting stuff that you wrote about Julian Assange at the weekend, because um, I, I'm, I'm always interested in people who are willing to defend what I regard as the indefensible in terms of the individual, because you've admitted that you don't like Julian Assange. I don't like I Julian don't like Assange him at all, no. However, you're worried about this extradition business, aren't you? Oh, hugely. I mean, the powers which the, the Anglo-American Extradition Treaty gives to the American state are extraordinary, and they, they are prepared to use them. They can require us, under this treaty, to send to them someone uh, who, has, who has committed what they believe to be a crime against their laws, but not there, here. Mm. Now, if we try to get, so if some American journalist leaked details of, of British secrets in, in British papers, uh, details of British secrets in American newspapers and American media. And we went to the Americans and said, this guy has broken our official secrets act, we want him. Uh, you can just imagine uh, if, what would happen if an American citizen or indeed any um, was was uh, was involved in this. They wouldn't let us have them. Uh, it's completely one-sided. The other thing, of course, is that it's quite clear that the Assange case is a political one. The Obama administration decided not for political reasons, because they liked him, but for perfectly sound legal reasons a long time ago, that it was legally inadvisable to extradite Assange. And they, they publicly said they weren't going to do it. And, and then Donald Trump, who's, who's blown hot and cold on yeah. Assange at one stage, he said, I love WikiLeaks, right. for instance. Uh, when he came into office and became increasingly reliant on the military security complex, which is actually about the only part of Washington which works. Uh, when he became reliant on them, he began to start uh, to start pressing for his extradition. And senior officials of the Trump administration, such as Mike Pompeo, former CIA director and now Secretary of State, have actually openly attacked Assange uh, in ways which, if, if a minister did them in this country, would would make a trial impossible. Yeah. The whole thing is prejudiced and political. And the, actually, the extradition tr treaty does specifically rule out a political extradition. And all you have to do is examine the way in which this has been done. You can see uh, the, the Espionage Act of, of 1917, for goodness sake, a panic act passed by Woodrow Wilson in the middle of a war scare. Uh, it, it's the basis of it. And it, it, it is plainly a political prosecution. And whatever you think of you know, how he's behaved uh, and what he's done, in fact, not all of his behavior has been bad, though there are definitely things that he's done which uh, I think most civilized people would 
would disapprove of, and I don't share his politics. Uh, and I, the one time we we encountered each other on a, um, in, a in a in a virtual debate, uh, we clashed quite severely. Mm. Despite all that, uh, this is a, this is one of those straightforward moments, as the old Dietrich Bonhoeffer warning when they came uh, for the guys I didn't uh, care about. I did nothing because I I mm. didn't like them, and then they came for me. Yeah. And there was nobody to stand up for me because everybody who could have stood up for me had already been rounded up. This is one of those moments where we have to stand up for people we don't particularly like because if this if this acquisition goes ahead, nobody in this country is safe mm. from being plucked uh, by an enormous hand out of out of this country and taken to the United States and put in a supermax prison. Sure. If they decide that the particularly journalists, though it, 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 it's, it, it must extend to others, but particularly journalists, if they decide that somebody has done something which they really, really don't like, then they have that power if the Assange extradition goes through. And any British journalist who uh, who is remotely concerned about the freedom of the press should be against this extradition, and in my view should be standing up against it, as indeed should anybody in this country who cares about us being an independent, sovereign country. We can't allow uh, another country to dictate uh, who who we send to them. We have to be able to decide properly whether this is really a crime. And I don't think the extradition procedure mm. that we have allows for that. No. Well, listen, there's, I, I largely agree with you on that, but there's a couple of things, points I would make, but we're out of time, so I'll save them for next week. Uh, and I shall, because I'm sure the, the row will still be going on. Peter Hitchens, Mail on Sunday columnist uh, and defender of Julian Assange, not because he likes him, but because he doesn't like what the Americans would like to do to him. Peter, thanks very much indeed. We'll talk to you next week. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Forget about Brexit, forget about COVID. The BBC is still very much front and centre uh, of all sorts of conversations that are going on. We saw uh, last night the proms over the weekend where finally uh, the victory was ours. They did actually perform, uh, albeit a, a rather different version of Jerusalem, which some people didn't like. Uh, they did perform Land of Hope and Glory. They did perform Real Britannia. Uh, this morning, I'm looking at a piece on the front page of the Telegraph which says the BBC is to end its meetings culture after the new director general decreed that most of them are a waste of time. <laughs> Well, well, congratulations, uh, Mr. Davy. He's actually worked out that having endless meetings is completely and utterly uh, inappropriate when you're trying to run a business, because that's what the BBC needs to do. Uh, but the latest criticism of them uh, is about the firing, basically, of the entire question of sports team, including Sue Barker, uh, basically because she's too old uh, and she's too white uh, and she's too middle class, because apparently the BBC continues not to get it right. Whenever they get an opportunity to do something right... They get it wrong. Let's talk to Paul Conyu, columnist for the New European, former newspaper editor, of course, a man uh, who has, I would say, mixed feelings about the BBC. He's not quite as anti them as I am. Paul, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Thanks very much. Yeah, not bad at all. I mean, poor old Sue Barker. eh? She's been a staple of the BBC for years and years and years and years. uh, But seemingly they've grown tired of her because she's too old now. Yeah, well, I I like a question of sport, but... Funnily enough, one of my students' sons, you know, said... Why don't they get, so, you know, this, this is before the announcement, when he last saw it with me, when he, when he watches, watches when he's with me, yeah. said, in fact, why don't they get some people, young people recognise or care about, you know. Well, that's, of, a good, and, that's a good point, made well made by, by somebody who probably watches hardly any TV, though. Yeah, well, well yes, well, he, well, if he does, he does it, he does it sort of via his, via his apps rather than right. sitting with his I mean, most of the people, most of the people who, I mean, I stopped watching a question of sport years ago. I mean, I remember it when it started. It was very funny. Um, but nowadays, I just find it completely tedious. However, the bottom line surely is, is if the audience uh, like the presenters, and, and why wouldn't they, um, 
then the audience is probably of a similar age to, to, to the people who are presenting it, and that's that surely makes for a decent match, doesn't it? Yeah, that's true to a point. You know, I've got to make a declaration here that, in fact, that both Matt Dawson and, and Phil Tufnell are friends of mine right. via a charity we're all involved in, so I, I feel for them. But at the same time, I can understand why the BBC... Looking desperate to attract a younger audience, thinks that the program may well need revamping. I've got no idea whether the new DG Tim Baby was involved in any discussions mm. about this decision or whether it had been taken before he formally took over. But I'd be surprised if he wasn't in some way consulted. And I can understand it. At the same time, Mike, I mean, we've got we've got something I watch more often: the question of sport, which is which is Sky Soccer Saturday. Yes, involved involved in a very similar. Uh, dispute after the axing of Phil, of Phil Thompson, Char, Charlie Nicholas, and another friend of mine for the same Matt character. Matt Letizia. We're involved with Matt Letizia. Yeah. You know, so... But, you know, so the point but, is, is the point is, is that, you know, if the show is a successful show, which I believe that Matt Letizia show was, as as is a question of sport, why are they changing it? You know as well as I do why they're changing it, Paul. It's because they're going to make it more diverse, in words uh, of one syllable. I think there's, I think in some ways there's, there's nothing wrong with that. Although I don't think it explains everything. And I think, I think in the same way that even when they've still got good ratings, soap operas, for example, introduce new new characters and acts old ones. You know, things have have to generate, and you have to try to appeal to a broader, wider, and indeed younger audience. Now it's a gamble, a question of sport. Its new lineup hasn't been announced yet, but you know it may backfire on the BBC. But I can understand why why they're doing it. By the same token, Sky Sport may, it may find that their new panel of Tim Sherwood, Robbie Fowler, Julian Lescott, and I must confess, Adebayo Akinfoire, who nothing to do with his race, but in fact that you know, the, the Wickham's striker who, I must confess, I wouldn't recognise him if I was standing no. next to him at a bus stop. No, I mean, you've got to be a bit of a football anorak to even know who he is, to be fair. But, I mean, Robbie Fowler's not exactly uh, any different in age from, from say, Matt Letizio's generation, is he? No, no. I no, mean, no. I like Robbie Fowler. I, I, you know, I wouldn't say I'm a friend of his, but I've met him a few times. He's been on Talk Sport with me. You know, Robbie Fowler's a very funny guy. But, uh, you know, how is he much different from what they've just got rid of? No, and Tim and Tim Sherwood. But well, he wasn't a very good manager of my club, Spurs. So I'm, you know. So, but, but no, you're right. You're right. But of course, what Ian Wright made a very good point as well. You know, sort of um, Wright was right not for the first time. You know, when he when he reacted badly, I think quite rightly reacted badly to the to the social media yeah. out, outcry, which has gone from extremes on both sides. Well, that's the trouble, isn't fact, it? Of the argument. Yeah. In fact, some people are saying. This is racism because you know, you know, because they're introducing more people from BAME backgrounds. Although you could argue that you could you could argue against against that on, on one ground alone, which is the fact many of our the best players we have around are from BAME backgrounds. Yeah, but, but then on the other hand, there there is the there is the the right wing, you know, who argue, you know, saying, well, this is all this is all introducing too many black. Black faces and on, onto our soccer programs, or even have the same argument about question of sport, depending on when they announce the panel. On the other hand, 
on the other hand, you, 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 you've got the left say, saying that you've got to have, you know, probably an imbalance from yeah. the same background. I mean, nobody, listen, nobody objects to there being um, in any way, shape or form diverse television panels and people coming to play sport uh, who are then made into pundits because let's face it the very large bulk of people playing now uh, football in the Premier League first of all are foreign uh, I was listening to an interview with Greg Dyke the other day in which he said I think in a charity shield uh, there was there was any there was either one or, or no uh, English players whatsoever um, because you know, simply English players are, are becoming a sort of a thing of the past in the Premier League, and very few teams actually really promote them. But the point is, is that you know that doesn't mean that you then have to have a panel of French people all over the place. But you, you know, nobody objects to it. But I object to it just because it's being done for the sake of it. And I get the sense that this whole question of sport thing is being done just for the sake of it. I mean, why suddenly now, after twenty-four years of Sue Barker on the BBC, is she getting axed? Well, yeah, it depends on what we don't know about a question of sport. And I've got an open mind on this one. And what we don't know is if the programme is going to be revamped in a very different way so that, so that the whole format changes rather than simply the faces of the, of the captains and, and, and Sue Barker as the host. I don't know. It's a gamble. But I can understand why Tim Davey or whoever it was at the BBC decided to make this change. And of course, it's not happening straight away. In fact, you know, sort of... Uh, well, presumably they filmed the entire season already, haven't they? Precisely. And and who knows, you know, the backlash, you know, from viewers might be such that there's a rethink. I yeah. doubt it. I doubt well, there it, might but... be. I mean, but, I mean, the trouble is, if the BBC continues down this road of trying to find young viewers, they're going to be in a hiding to nothing because at the end of the day... They don't have any young viewers and they yeah, won't have any young viewers. I mean, my teenage kids don't anymore watch the BBC or television in general uh, than they go around, you know, quoting Shakespeare. They but just don't do it. But, Mike, that, that generational gulf issue is a, is a, is a cross-media issue for all, you know, for all of us. It's, it applies to newspapers, desperate to attract, you know, young, you know, the elusive butterfly of young readers... It applies to, applies to TV and radio. Doesn't apply to us. We got loads of young. We got loads of young viewers because we're on YouTube. People love it. They love YouTube. It's as simple as that. Yeah. yeah, but but you don't but you don't know in a sense how how others are reacting. And I can see why the B, why the BBC is anxious and Sky and Sky are yeah. anxious to you know to attract to attract younger younger a younger audience. Yeah. And in Sky's case, of course, it affects you know which are different for the BBC at the moment, it actually affects the issue of, of advertising revenue if your audience figures are falling. So so you don't know. I mean, Jeff Stelling, for example, on Sky on Sky Soccer, I mean, to me, he's an institution, and I can't, I can't imagine it without Jeff Stelling. Yeah. Although there were rumours that he might quit over his uh, his old buddies. But he's not going to quit. He's not going to quit half a million quid a year, is he? I mean, the point no, is, is that... No, I, 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 I doubt it. But I doubt it. But obviously, he's he's not exactly enamoured about about the about the axings. But everything everything in the media changes. You know that, Mike. Yeah. It's, it's, and a, you have to adapt, and that's and that's what the, the, the people and changing uh, landscape. No, I get that, but I think I, I think the trouble is, Paul. Listen, I've got to let you go because we're running out of time. But the changing landscape is all very well. The BBC's changing it for the wrong reasons, with the wrong people, and with the wrong ideas. But that comes as no surprise because it's the BBC. Now, got some breaking news for you, by the way. Some good news, actually, uh, for those of you who don't like um, watching 
Prime Minister's questions with Mr. Forensic, Sir Keir Starmer. He might have to miss it this week, as it turns out he's started to self-isolate because of a coronavirus scare. A member of his household has shown possible symptoms and has had a test. He's apparently going to shut himself away until they get the results. Well, I wish him well. I hope he doesn't have it. Uh, I hope he comes away from that particular experience um, very much more healthy. But it'll be interesting to see what happens on Wednesday, won't it? Because it could be Angela Rayner versus somebody other than Boris Johnson. I wonder who that would be. I'd love to see Angela Rayner in the dispatch box. That'd be hilarious. Could be really, really entertaining. Book your seat right now for Prime Minister's Questions with Angela Rayner. This is Talk Radio. Talk Radio. Now, uh, let's talk about something a bit more, shall we say, um, animal-tastic, because we're going to be talking about parrots now. Parrots are fascinating creatures, right? All of us have seen parrots in one form or another. Uh, I was just reminding uh, my producer, Marta, earlier that uh, there was a great story a while ago about a guy who had a parrot in a shop, and it used to swear at people as they came in, uh, which a lot of people didn't take too kindly to. But Claire Longworth is a manager at Birdline. Uh, She's going to tell us all about parrots and uh, what's great about them. Claire, a very good afternoon to you. Afternoon. Thank you for having me on. Not at all. Thank you for for joining us. Now, um, I understand you may or may not have a parrot with you, which uh, could be risky on live radio. Yeah, definitely. As far as I know, there's no swear words um, to be heard. That's good. So fingers crossed for that. Apologise if they do. No, no, don't worry. Um, And what's the parrot's name? Uh, We don't know for this one, actually. She was found over the weekend Ah. in Peckham in London. Okay. Um, A Peckham parrot. uh, So she's here for safekeeping while we try and find her owner. Right. Because a lot of people have parrots as pets, don't they? Because they make for quite good company, I suppose, because they can mimic you and they can talk to you. Absolutely, yes. Um, yeah, they make fantastic companion animals, actually, mm. you know, and uh, they can, um, you know, obviously um, join in the conversation with you, sing, dance with you, have a cuddle with you. Um, but there are challenges with having them as well. Right. Um, and like any animal, you need to learn how to care for them. Oh, I can hear him. He's talking, isn't he? I mean, he's obviously enjoying the radio conversation. Yeah, absolutely. I'm not quite sure what she's saying. There's some good girls in there, but I don't know what else. So, okay. but yeah. It's um, a she. Sorry, my apologies. I didn't mean to miss. I didn't mean to misgender the parrot. That's obviously a terrible thing to have done. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> so, I mean, we've got apparently 393 different species of parrot. Um, I've obviously, I obviously know about the uh, the greys. It's an African grey, isn't there? Uh, which is probably right. uh, one of the more more the more famous ones. But are they all different shapes and sizes, or are they all generally the same? Absolutely. I mean, parrot is a, 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 a umbrella term, like like dog or cat is, and within right. that, there's lots of different species. Um, so, from very tiny um, little birds like budgies can be are considered parrots, um, right through to macaws, um, which you know can have a wingspan of a, a foot or more. Wow! And I've, I'm reading here that there is a very large parrot called a kakapo parrot, uh, which is so large that it can't actually fly. That's right. Yes, one of New Zealand's flightless um, parrots. Right. Yes, um, you'd need uh, a very big. Uh, you need a very big cage for it as well, because apparently it grows to over two feet <laughs> I think long. They tend to be- just in the wild um and i know they're doing big rehabilitation programs to get the numbers up right in new zealand okay now they're very intelligent birds most birds are not known for their intelligence are they why are parrots so intelligent 
Um, well, I, I think it depends on the size of the bird. So the bigger the bird, generally the bigger the brain. Um, there have been lots of tests done on African greys, which, as you said, are um, one of the more well-known um, versions. And they have a, the, the, the mental capacity of a kind of a three to a five-year-old. Okay. Um, so obviously that brings its own challenges. with so like Owen Jones then. Um, so yeah, and these are gorgeous macaws you can see on your screen there. Um, but yeah, so I mean, as smaller birds have got a lesser brain, but even in the wild, I mean, crows are known to be incredibly intelligent birds, um, and they can um, build relationships with um, humans right. and uh, bring presents, etc., as well. Okay, um, well-known fact. Wow, and do you know? I mean, you might not know the answer to this, but how many parrots are there in the world? Would you say? Oh, my goodness. I millions? have absolutely no idea. Millions, right. millions. Right. And, I mean, one of the things that people like about parrots, as you say, is that they can mimic people and they can talk and they can sing and they can do all sorts of things. We're always told that birds are, in fact, descendants of dinosaurs. Are parrots also similarly descended from dinosaurs? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, parrots are birds as well. So, yeah, I mean, and uh, there's lots of jokes within the parrot community about calling them their little feathered dinosaurs, etc. Um, obviously, they don't have the domestication of some other household pets like right. cats and dogs. So they are closer to a wild animal than, than those other um, more familiar uh, pets. And is, and is there any kind of uh, um, history to why they're coloured so brightly? And why is it a camouflage because of where they were normally found? Or, or why are they so colourful? Yeah, absolutely. It will. Um, part of it will be to do with um, camouflage. So we get lots and lots of green parrots, and obviously that would help them camouflage into their um, natural habitat. You know, which tends to be the uh, the rainforests uh, of um, America, is like where quite a, a number of species come from. But equally so, it's also to uh, attract um, members of the opposite opposite sex for them. So it can very much be about attraction and mating. Um, so some birds, uh, parrots are diamorphic, which means that the males and females look differently and others, um, you can't tell the gender. Um, sorry, we've got... Oh, no, uh, I love it. No, I think it's again. great. I think it's very atmospheric. I think it's no no point would there be to doing a spot, a spot about parrots without the parrot actually squawking in the background. I think it's great. Absolutely. You know. And so, I mean, they mate for life apparently as well, right? Um, some, and some do, some don't. Um, you know, there are studies that show that quite a number of parrots will actually swap partners quite frequently. So it really? all depends on the specific breed. Ah, okay. And apparently they eat with their feet as well, right? Absolutely right. Yeah. Um, so I mean, obviously they'll pick up um, food with their beaks um, and ha have a crunch that way. But equally so, uh, they'll they'll hold food in their in their feet mm. um, and bring it up to their beak to eat, and that's really quite cute and endearing to watch. And actually, just watching their dexterity with their feet is really fascinating. Yes. Um, yeah, well, I mean, I find parrots to be fascinating just all, all all, round, really. I mean, I've never owned a bird, actually. I've had cats, I've had dogs, I've had gerbils, I've had a tortoise. I've never actually had a bird of any kind. I mean, how easy is it to look after a parrot? And do you need... A lot of people worry about the fact that you leave them in a cage and it's not that good for them. Can you leave them to sort of fly about the house? What, what, what can you do if you're looking after one? 
Well, again, it all depends on the on the specific bird and and species. I mean, uh, there is an argument to say that you know it's it's cruel to keep these creatures as pets. Um, and ideally, that we would have left them in the rainforests a hundred or so years ago. But yeah. the fact is, we do have them in this country. They are bred, and they do need homes. Um, so just providing the biggest cage that you can for them, making sure that you've got perches of different textures and diameters to keep their feet stretched and exercised nicely so they don't get pressure sores making sure that they've got lots and lots of different toys um, in their cage to play with mm. to shred because that's a natural behavior making sure you can provide the best best diet possible um you know which tends to be fresh fruit and veg grains pulses a mixture of seeds um and you can get um complete pellet diets as well um so you know just kind of making um sure that they they can have everything that they need uh, enrichment wise as much as we can do right. um and obviously time out of the cage time bonding with the family that they live with is really important they're flock creatures after all yeah. if they don't have other parrots to hang around with you're their flock uh, um and so commitment of time is quite a big thing um but it's like any animal you have to learn how to care for it in the yeah. best way possible okay uh fortunately over the past 20 odd years or so um information on how to care for these birds has kind of increased a lot um so we know a lot more now than we used to do about the best way to look after them right and is it wise to have more than one i mean would it be better to, if you are going to have parrots but to keep two of them like if if, if, if that was possible I think so. I mean, obviously, space, noise um, of all considerations. I live in a flat, so I wouldn't ever dream of having a huge macaw because right. it wouldn't be fair. I don't have the room for it. But I have a couple of smaller um, parrots myself. Um, and then obviously a few that I caretake whilst we're looking for their owners or more, more permanent homes. And, I, you know, I think it is good for them to have, um, you know, parrot conversations as well as human conversations. No, of course. And if you didn't train a parrot to speak, would it do it anyway? Way? Would it just kind of mimic what what it was hearing? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I haven't actually deliberately trained any of my parrots. Mm. Um, they tend to just very naturally um, pick up what you're saying and mimicking. And, you know, like with any any animal, you, you tend to be quite repetitive. So with a dog, it might well be walkies or dinner yeah, time right. or what have you. With Chicken. a parrot, the things you're going to say are quite similar, like, you know, step up if you want them to get up onto your hand or what yeah. have you. And so they'll learn those uh, to associate those phrases okay. um, and, and possibly mimic them. Fantastic. Well, listen, uh, great to talk to you. Um, it's been uh, very uh, educational as ever. I'm told that a group of parrots is also called a pandemonium, which is a rather good uh, word. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, great description. Very apt. It really is. Wonderful stuff. And Claire Longworth, um, Birdline, is that um, is that a sort of place people can come if they want to find a parrot or get a parrot? Absolutely. So um, we're one of the uh, UK's oldest running parrot rescues. We've been going since the 80s. Um, we've got over, we rehomed over 5,000 birds um, during that period of time. Um, we've got a website, which is www.birdline.co.uk. We're particularly looking for people to come on board and foster um we're pretty full up when it comes to rehoming birds and and we're getting more and more of those every day as we're getting towards the next
next lockdown. We do actually have a little bit of a plea. and um, We've just been contacted by someone who has got 80 aviary birds that they need to rehome. So we're desperately looking for aviary homes in the southwest of England at okay. the moment. All right. Well, if anyone's in the southwest of England, they should get in touch. And it's, uh, of course, birdline.co.uk. Clear Longwood. Thank you very much indeed. Parrots. Who knew that they'd be so interesting? But they are. Of course they are because they can talk and everybody loves an animal that can talk right even if you can't teach it anything it will talk to you anyway talk radio across the uk online on dab and on your smart speaker the independent republic of mike graham on talk radio if you enjoyed that be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1 monday to friday on talk radio via dab online or via the talk radio app and if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.